the Song of Solomon. <clears throat> this book, the Song of Solomon, is probably one of the most strategic books in the Bible for 2023-2024. Just about two months ago, <clears throat> a man named Andy Stanley. Anybody here familiar with Andy Stanley? <clears throat> he was the son of Charles Stanley, First Baptist Church, Atlanta. Andy Stanley is, has his own church, a thriving church, big church. Uh, Andy Stanley has written lots of books on leadership. He has been a leader of big churches, and a lot of guys that pastor big churches will look to Andy Stanley for advice on how to run an organization. Just a couple of months ago, North Point, that's his church, had a conference called the Unconditional Conference. And that conference was designed mostly for those that are homosexual, transgender, lesbian, gay, and their parents. The name of it was Unconditional, and the conference was designed to help you live as a Christian and also as someone that's homosexual. That's a deviation, you see. That's a, it's a coming away. A couple of years ago, a woman named Kristen Dumez, who used to claim to be a very conservative Christian, she was a, a podcaster for some time, Kristen Dumez, she wrote a book called Jesus and John Wayne. I do not recommend Jesus and John Wayne. Jesus and John Wayne, and the book, the premise of the book was her hard look at manhood, Christian manhood, and how culture she says culture has shaped Christian manhood instead of Christ. So she would, she would castigate things like um, what she called muscular Christianity from Teddy Roosevelt to Billy Graham to um, even promise keepers. You guys remember promise keepers? She did not like promise keepers. <clears throat> we live in a world that has decided that you can take gender and sex and separate the two so that you can be born a man then claim to be a woman. You may have seen the documentary that came out about a year ago called What is a Woman by Matt Walsh. I've seen that. Matt Walsh is not an evangelical Christian. He is Roman Catholic, a committed Roman Catholic, but he produced a documentary called What is a Woman. I do not recommend it because there's lots of foul language in it, but if you decide to work through the foul language, <clears throat> it is eye-opening. The transgender mania has swept across the United States. We're in the middle of that right now. Starts with changing who can go into a public restroom. The transgender mania, I think, will, will if it's left unchecked, it will end up ruining women's sports. It'll, it'll, just get, it'll just take it away. E even in our own city, we, as a church, we have partnered with a couple of ministries over the years to help people. And what we're running into right now, because of our principled stand and what we believe that in God's good creation, and really just believing a plain reading of the Bible, because we believe these things, even some of the ministries we've partnered with, we are having to separate from because of their stance on transgenderism. <clears throat> and into this mix that I've just mentioned, 2023, into this mix, we bring 
a poem, Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon is not like any other book in the entire Bible. Song of Solomon is not, you don't hear about it in the Old Testament. It's never quoted in the New Testament. You don't ever hear Jesus reading from the Song of Solomon. There are a few books in the Bible that are as fascinating as this book. There is no storyline. There's not a narrative. There's not, there's not even real characters besides Solomon and, and a woman. <clears throat> but it's worth us looking at this. I think this book has something to say to us at this cultural moment. So let's do what we always do. Let's just sort of go through the book like we always will. And uh, set it up as we study these books. If you haven't been coming to Foundations, typically what we do, uh, this class, this six weeks, is designed just to look at a book of the Bible and get a feel for it. My, my desire is, when you walk out of here tonight, you actually have a better grasp on the Song of Solomon than you did when you came in. So let's begin with the title. The title. Historically, there are three different titles for this book. Historically, it was called the Canticles. C-A-N-T-I-C-L-E-S, I think is how you spell it, canticles. That is just a Latin, that's a Latin word that means songs. So remember the Latin translation of the Bible is called the Vulgate, and that was used for a long time. The Vulgate was used all throughout the Middle Ages, and this book was called canticles. It's sometimes, some of the old preachers would call it canticles, it means songs. Another name for it is from uh, chapter 1, verse 1, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. We know it as the Song of Solomon. That's another title for this book. A third title uh, that I, I like that is probably the, the best is right there, verse 1, the Song of Songs. You understand that's a superlative. We do that with Jesus, the Lord of Lords or the King of Kings, that's what this means. The Song of Songs. In other words, these eight chapters, there, there is something superlative here. Let me show you a couple of things. One, let me show you one thing. If you've got a Bible, uh, flip all the way back to a book called 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 32. And 1 Kings chapter 4 verse 32, there's a description of the Song of Solomon. This is what the writer says <clears throat> about Solomon. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs. Now think about that. We have 31 proverbs, 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. And each of the proverbs, I mean, we may have several hundred of them. There are 3,000 proverbs that Solomon spoke. Not only that, his songs were 1,005. So there are 1,005 songs written. What we have here is the very best. It is the song of all those songs. There are 1,004 songs that didn't measure up to this song, the song of songs. That's the program. That's the title. How about the author and the date? Most would agree, uh, it's easy to see right there in the front of verse 1, that uh, the author is Solomon. Most would believe if Solomon wrote it, he wrote it in the very early part of his reign. If you'd like to have a year, maybe 965 B.C., 900 years before Julius Caesar would 
cross the channel and go into Britannia. It was a long time ago, 965 B.C. If you read Solomon, you realize this had to be written early if he wrote it because it was written before he had 700 wives. Think with me about that, Jeff. Shake your head. 700. Right. Not only that, think. 700 wives, 300 concubines, 1,000 women. That's a lot. But the way this is written is before all of that happened. That was, that's later on in his life. Before that happened, this is written as one man and one woman. It, when you read the Song of Songs, it is written as a newlywed couple. In fact, we used to say about Solomon, right? So he... As a, as a young man, he wrote the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs is not written by an old man. Old man doesn't think like that. A young man does. That's a young man's game right there, Song of Songs. Then he became a middle-aged man. He wrote the book of Proverbs. The Proverbs, you're writing that to your son. You're helping him think through some of the issues of life. That's Proverbs. Ecclesiastes, he's an old man. He looks back on life. These are the lessons I've learned from being alive. And those lessons are don't waste your time chasing a dollar or women or wine. Be satisfied with life, what you have. So that's Ecclesiastes. The Song of Songs written by a young man. If you, if you want some structure, it's hard to impose a structure here, but let me just give you uh, kind of the structure of the book in a broad sense. Broad sense. Uh, there are three phases of the book. The first phase is the courtship. The courtship. From chapter 1 to chapter 3, verse 5, that is a courtship between a man and a woman. Courtship is a lost art. It should not be. Courtship. From chapter 1 to chapter 3, verse 5. And then, and then after that, the second phase is the wedding itself. From chapter 3, verse 6 to chapter 5, verse 1, is the wedding in the Song of Songs. And then, um, for lack of a better way to say it, matrimony. Let's just say matrimony. How about that? Matrimony in chapter 5, verse 2, the last three chapters to chapter 8, verse 14. So courtship, 1 through 3, wedding, 3 through 5, matrimony, 5 through 8. Let's talk about uh, the genre that this is and the interpretation of that. So where do you fit? Where do you fit the Song of Solomon? We, we've got it here in the, the poetry books. If, if it's poetry, then how do you understand it? The Song of Songs has always been a struggle since it was written and included in the Bible, and it's always been in the Bible. Since there's been a Bible, it's been in there. <clears throat> and it's always been a struggle for all of those that teach the Bible, for, for rabbis. It's been a struggle for Christian pastors, for priests. What do you do with the Song of Songs? The rabbis, before uh, Christianity, uh, when the rabbis would teach the Song of Solomon... <clears throat> You had to be 30 years old before you could hear the Song of Solomon. And if you read it, you'll find out why that is. And I tell young men, look, do not read that book. There's only one book in the Bible that you better not read before you get married, and that is the Song of Solomon. You got no business reading the Song of Solomon. And the rabbis will say, you got to be 30 years old before you could read the Song of Solomon. Okay, so then you read it. How do you interpret well, for a long time, uh, really for most of history, for most of the history of the Song of Solomon, 
uh, it's been interpreted by way of allegory. 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 When you read allegory, the problem with allegory is that you can make the allegory mean anything you want. Allegory is subjective. So allegory is, okay, you read it and you say, well, really, this represents this, this represents that, and this is what it means. That's a dangerous, allegory is a dangerous way to interpret Scripture. But that is the way the Song of Solomon I mean, from, uh, think about just Christian history, from Jerome to Augustine. We get so much of our theology from Augustine, from Origen to a man named the Venerable Bede. If you ever read the ecclesiastical history written by the Venerable Bede, it's the history of the Anglo-Saxons after the Romans came out of Britannia and the Anglo-Saxons came in and Bede wrote this history of the church. He interpreted Song of Solomon. Luther, the great reformer, the Sola Scriptura, Luther, who said, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. He read the Song of Solomon as an allegory. John Calvin. John Calvin, who was so strong on doctrine and read so much commentary when he got to the Song of Solomon. Allegory. Hey, look, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I love Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He's the greatest Baptist preacher that's ever lived. I got a dog named Spurgeon. I mean, I like Spurgeon. Now, that dog's don't have long for this world, I'm afraid. Um, anyway, but I got, I got a dog named Spurgeon. I like Spurgeon. But when Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, when he read the Song of Solomon and preached it, he preached it as allegory. So over our Christian history, 2,000 years of Christian history, most of the time it's been interpreted as allegory. But, but because we do a grammatical, historical approach to interpreting the Bible. So, so be careful when you say, I take the Bible literally. Be careful saying that because we actually don't take all of it literally. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away from you. You don't do that. You understand that Jesus is using hyperbole when he says that. What we do is we look at what, what is the intent of the author, what kind of literature is it, and then we interpret that accurately. We believe it has authority. There are parts that are literal. We take them literally. What we don't take it all literally. So it could have been allegory. That's one way to look at it. Another way that it's been interpreted over the years is by drama. Drama, that this was almost like a play. It was a drama that was written about Solomon and this Shulamite, Shulamite woman or girl, young girl. Solomon and almost like a soap opera. When you read it, you can see how the different scenes come in between Solomon and the Shulamite woman. One interpreter said that it was a funeral dirge, a funeral dirge. I was like, brother, have you read the Song of Solomon? There's nothing funeral-like about the Song of Solomon. Uh, one uh, interpreter said it was a wedding, could have been a wedding ceremony. I think that's probably an okay way to look at it. I think the best way to interpret the Song of Solomon is history. It is history and poetry. It is history written in a poetic way. It is a poetic writing of an actual historical person and event. This is what it appears to be. Or if you want to write it like this, it's inspired Inspired poetry. Inspired poetry. 
And inspired poetry fits into how we read the Bible. In other words, we, when we read 1 Samuel, we read it how it's written. When we go to the book of Mark, we understand there, there is a narrative. That's why when I'm going through the book of Mark, I've changed even the, kind of the structure of how I preach sometimes. We'll go back, let's go through the story so that you have a good grasp on the narrative itself, and then go and make application. Want to know the story? Sometimes you're preaching out of Ephesians or Philippians. It, it's not a narrative. It is actual epistle. So you put more emphasis on the words. What are the words that Paul used? That's what we did in Romans. So you have to think through, how do you interpret this book? And uh, Jews and Christians did allegory for a long time. In recent years, in recent years, there's been a historical approach, and it's been very helpful. Tommy Nelson, you guys familiar with Tommy Nelson? Denton Bible Church, he has just retired, I think, or announced his retirement. T Tommy Nelson was the very first preacher, uh, a known preacher, that took the Song of Solomon and actually did something with it. I think, I think Tommy Nelson went overboard with the Song of Solomon. It almost turned into pornography when he was teaching it. Like, I'd be embarrassed to be around people for sitting there and, and watching and listening to him teach it. But he was the first one to say, this is, this is what it means. Tommy Nelson did, did that. Uh, Mark Driscoll, before his ministry went off the rails, uh, he, he did that with the Song of Solomon. Matt Chandler, uh, he turned it down a little bit, had a really good approach. The Mingling of Souls was his book on, uh, on the Song of Solomon. I lived in Mobile from 2004 to 2010, lived in Mobile, Alabama. I pastored Dolphin Way Baptist Church before I came here. And uh, there's a church, uh, this contemporary church, they're always doing kind of things on the edge. And they were going to do a series on the Song of Solomon, and the, the pastor put his bed on the roof, his, him and his wife. Their bed on the, like, that's the dumbest thing. That's not, what this is, that's not what this is about, right? What do we do with the Song of Solomon? Well, when we re read the Bible, we want to fit where we are in the Bible in the redemptive history of God. So, so you always want to know, where does it fit. Between Genesis and Revelation, where does the Song of Solomon fit? Well, let's just flip through a couple of, uh, a couple of ways to understand it. So if you've got your Bible, let's flip back to, let's start in Genesis. I'll just show two or three places, and I'll try to tie it together. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 2, verse 19 is where I'll start. By the way, when we, when we read this, this is, as Christians, why we think God's creation of man and woman so distinct is good. It's in the Bible. So verse 19. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come upon the man. While he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up the place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman. He brought her to the man, and the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. And Jesus quoted this, 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Genesis 2, marriage. Man and a woman together. Genesis 2. You got that. Genesis 2. Then you go to the, then you go to the, the very middle of the Bible, where we are, in Song of Songs. So Genesis 2 to the Song of Songs. That's a celebration of a man and a woman in marriage. It's one long eight-chapter rejoicing about marriage between a man and a woman, Song of Songs, okay? So then, that's Old Testament. What do we do in the New Testament? We'll just skip over the Gospels for now, but Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 is where you always want to go. A young man getting married, he needs to memorize. Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> I'll just take you to 20, verse 22. So marriage is invented. God invented it. Genesis 2. God celebrates it, Solomon, Song of Solomon. And then Ephesians 5, Christian marriage is, is infused with meaning. We find out why. Why do a, does a man and a woman come together? It's not just romance. There's something else. Why? Let me read it to you. <clears throat> Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. All of a sudden, Marriage has a deeper meaning. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water, with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, this sounds Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So, God created man and woman, Genesis chapter 2. Marriage is good. Solomon, the whole book, celebrates marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, using the same scripture from Genesis 2, that the marriage to, is, is more than just a man and a woman being together. It is an actual picture of the gospel. So that a man and a woman coming together becomes a living tribute, a living story of what Jesus has done for the church and how the church responds to Jesus. So people will know what Christ, living for Christ is like by a marriage. So there's so much more at stake in a marriage than just getting along and having a happy marriage. There's so much more at stake. So, so you have Old Testament, God created it, celebrated, and now infused it with meaning in Ephesians chapter 5, and then Revelation. So let's go to the very end of the book. Revelation 19. So we're getting near the end of the story. <clears throat> Revelation 
19. I'll just read 14 verses, 1 through 14. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of peals of thunder, crying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. I'll just stop there. So it opens up in a garden with marriage. There's Genesis 2. God's good creation opens up. In the middle of the book, Song of Solomon celebrates marriage. Jesus speaks of it in the Gospels. We didn't go there. But Paul writes it in, in Ephesians chapter 5, he gives it this gospel meaning. This is what it's about. And then the whole story of redemption history ends, ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb. And right in the middle of this whole gospel thread that runs through the entire Bible is the song of Solomon. Let's talk about some key text. What are some key, I won't read all of the whole thing. It, it won't take you but about an hour or so to read it at a, at a leisurely pace. Uh, a couple of key texts. I'll read a, the first 11 verses would be the key text. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And it begins, it's interesting to me, this book begins with a woman speaking. It's a woman's voice. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. She's speaking again in verse 5. I am very dark but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark. Because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards. But my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, who, tell me you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. Why should it be like one who bails herself beside the flocks of your companions? So you can start, I mean, you just keep on reading. And chapters, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 begins and sets the tone, and it begins with the voice of a woman. Chapter 2, a couple of key texts. Chapter 2, verse 7. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles, or the field, by the gazelles, or, or the, whew, by the gazelles, or the does of the field, that you not stir up 
and awaken love until it pleases. That right there is great advice for young single people. Do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Chapter 3, verse 5. <clears throat> I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles, or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Here is the problem with the society we live in. This is the struggle of every teenage boy and, and lots of the girls is they're inundated with pornography. It's almost impossible to escape it. And, and pornography has become such an epidemic that it is ruining the minds and the hearts and the natural God-given goodness of human sexuality. And it, it awakens things. Or I, I would back up and, I mean, you see in chapter 2, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 15... Chapter 2, verse 10, my beloved speaks and he says to me, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Y'all hear that phrase, arise, my love? Y'all remember that song? Anybody remember the song, arise, my love? Yeah, he used to sing that around Easter uh, about the resurrection. He got it from the Song of Solomon. has nothing to do with the resurrection. You can see how allegorically you just pick that up and put it over there. Uh, that's not what that meant. Or chapter 8, verse <clears throat> Again, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. There, there, chapter 8, that's five times. Chapter 8, verse 6 and 7. <clears throat> Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave, it fla its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. <laughs> That's a good text uh, to get a feel for what the Song of Solomon is about. I'm going to give you some entertaining. I didn't know how else to say it. Uh, I read them and was entertained. Couple of entertaining. Uh, chapter 4, verses 1 and following. <clears throat> Listen to how smooth Solomon is here. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Goes downhill here. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth. I guess he's just going through the body parts. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. In other words, you got all your teeth? And that's what he said, just right there. Your lips are like scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranates behind your veil. What about your neck? Your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields of all the shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like twin fawns of a gazelle. And they graze among the lilies. I don't even know what that means. Uh, you come down in verse 7, he sums it up. You are altogether beautiful, 
my love. There is no flaw in you. Or chapter 7, chapter 7. <clears throat> Look at this oh, smooth talk here. How beautiful are your feet. How beautiful are your feet. Uh, she's wearing some of those Birkenstocks. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels. They're the work of a master's hand. Your navel. Business is picking up here. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Go south again. Your belly is a heap of wheat, encircled with lilies. It's not quite as, uh, as romantic. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose, your nose is like a tower of Lebanon. So some of this doesn't translate to today, right? But you get the idea of what Solomon, he's, he's making a pretty hard case here for this woman. There's a lot you can read in the Song of Solomon that uh, is entertaining. So what are the lessons? If you were to read it, you sit down for an hour, what are some of the lessons that you might learn from the Song of Solomon? <clears throat> A couple, let me give you a couple of lessons. One is that as Christians, we celebrate, we celebrate monogamy. We celebrate that. You don't have to be married to celebrate that. Like, even if you're single, you can say, I celebrate the fact that, that, that a man marries a woman and the two of them stay together. It's the foundation, oftentimes, of a society. It's a stabilizing force in the church. It is a picture of Christ and the church. So we celebrate that, that it is good. That, that monogamy is good. You can also add, as Christians, we celebrate heterosexuality. Heterosexuality. We celebrate that. We don't have heterosexual pride parades. Pride is a sin. That's not what I mean when I say we celebrate. We celebrate how God has made us and that he's created sexuality like he has. It is something that is good in the confines of a marriage. So let's then take it apart. Let's we celebrate femininity, biblical femininity. We, or if you want to put it down, we celebrate womanhood. Like, like part of God creating humans in his image is him creating woman in the image of God. You get technical, the man in the image of God and the image of Adam, but creating her with the imago Dei is that it is good and distinct. Very similar, but distinct. We we celebrate the truth of the, the strength of femininity. This whole book begins with the voice of a woman. The other side of that coin, if you flip it over, as Christians, and I think this is where there's been some significant attack today, uh, we celebrate masculinity, like, like what it is to be a man. There is, it is good to be a man. There, there are good things that God has given when he created Man in his image, the, the things that make a man a man are, are good. They're God-given. They're things we celebrate. We're thankful for that. We don't think a man becoming feminine is good. We think a man being masculine is good because that's how God has given it to us. We celebrate masculinity. Okay, I'm going to give you a, a, a fifth lesson, I think, from uh, this book. 
that courtship, courtship isn't a fad. Courtship. Several years ago, there was a book that came out uh, <clears throat> that for Christians, Christian young people, it, uh, it harpooned dating. Remember, it was I kissed dating goodbye. You guys might have, some of you that had kids in the student ministry, you may have read it yourself. The guy that wrote that actually has deconstructed his faith, left his wife, and now is a homosexual. Yeah, he might should have dated a little bit, maybe. I don't know. But the whole premise was just dating a guy, and, and you just don't date at all until you're, you're married. There's something lost there. There is some sort of, and when you read the Song of Solomon, there is this picture of, of courtship. Of, of pursuit, of proving yourself worthy, of displaying that, of achieving her heart, winning. There's some of that that's involved here. Now, if you're a stalker, then you misunderstood. But there is some sort of courtship that, that seems to run through the ages from Song of Solomon. It should be all the way up here. Something that... Uh, that, that sometimes young people have forgotten today. Is I think some of, the, uh, some of the screens have taken that away, some of the art of, of courtship. And, and courtship is an actual biblical... I mean, the truth of the matter is, I, I, I'm just at our church right now, um, there are multiple young women that if there were young men to come and pursue and just act like men, if you, look, if you love your mom and you got a job and you go to church, you can get a, you can get a wife right now. I promise you. It's courtship. Okay, enough of that. I think I've done that little speech before. <clears throat> courtship isn't a fad. Um, I'll give you another lesson here is the power of words, that words have power. The way this is written with, it was in such poetry and such directness and such vivid language that, that there are powers, there's power in your words. I mean, chapter 5, I mean, chapter 5, let me show you what I mean. <clears throat> chapter 5, uh, verse 10. Chapter 5, verse 10, um, this is a woman is talking about her man. So the voice of a woman. She says, My beloved is radiant and ruddy. He's distinguished among ten thousands. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as raven. His eyes are like doves beside the streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full, a full pool. His cheeks are like bed of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs, his lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. His arms, now I never, would, I never would wear sleeves again. His arms are like, if my wife said this to me, his arms are like rods of gold set with jewels. His body is a polished ivory. Now look, you say that, to, the power of words, what that does, his legs are alabaster columns on bases of gold. There's a lot of poetry going on there. It's not just the man looking at the woman coming up with good things to say. She turned around and said, you know what? You're not too bad yourself. It's the power of, don't, don't forget the power of words. 
And God has given us words. The gospel is in words. What we learn is in words. The growing tomorrow, if you read the Bible, you're going to read words. That God speaks to us, not with just thoughts. He does so directly in words. There's great power in our words. Power to heal, power to kill, power to hurt, power to build up, and words. One of the lessons of Song of Solomon is the power of words. Another lesson, you read it, uh, is that romance is timeless. Timeless. If this is written in 965 B.C., let's just do a conservative estimate, 965, it is 2023. We're talking about almost 3,000 years. It's 3,000 years ago, and we right now relate to it. Now, some of it, you're some lost in translation, but most of you are like, oh, yeah, I know what he's, I know what he's talking about right there. Uh, the eighth lesson you learn is the beauty of, of marriage. The beauty of marriage. Th- this is taking the ideals of marriage that God created in Genesis chapter 2 that will represent the gospel in, in Ephesians chapter 5 that will consummate the coming, the second coming of Christ in Revelation 19. And this reminds us there is actually something beautiful about marriage. I'll give you a, a ninth one. And then I'll call it here in a minute. <clears throat> Reading the Song of Solomon helps us fight against the world's broken sexuality. We live in a world that has a broken. Uh, so we, we are careful in the culture war. We are not fighting a culture war because we just happen to be conservatives. We are not conservatives without something behind that. We're more than conservatives, we just... As Bible-believing Christians, we, we say there's something better. That God has given us something better than this broken sexuality. And so we, we stand against the things we stand against. We, we stand against, I stand against a bad marriage, people fighting at home. I think it's bad. I think divorce is a sin. God hates it. As Christians, we, we fight against that. We, against immorality, against adultery. We fight. Look, as Christians, we stand against abuse, any kind of abuse, sexual abuse. Guys, we, we hate that. It's a broken sexuality. Song of Solomon speaks to the beauty of marriage, you see. That's why we hate pornography. That's why we, when, we, when we deal with someone that is involved in a same-sex relationship that is a homosexual, whether it be a gay man or a lesbian or someone that is transgender, it's not that we stand in some sort of judgment. We're saying there's a, it's, a, it's a broken sexuality. It's not the way God is. There's something better for you. Something better. And what's better is Genesis 2 that takes us to the Song of Solomon that is, is, is shown fruit in Ephesians 5 that gives the consummation of the kingdom in Revelation 19. That, it, that the gospel... It's the, beauty, it's the beauty of the gospel. It's the beauty of the gospel. We need to always make sure we, we are, keep pressing the gospel to these issues. Gospel. It's the beauty of the gospel that speaks to the issues of the day. That the gospel heals and the gospel convicts and the gospel restores. It's the gospel of Jesus. Before I close and say a word of prayer and invite up, uh, invite uh, Dick Laubach up, uh, I'd like to recommend a couple of resources to you. 
if you want to read or listen, let's say you like to read articles or listen to some podcasts, the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, or if you just write CBMW, if you Google CBMW, Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, lots of helpful things there. You don't want to go dive off into a book. Rosaria Butterfield, who was a college professor, a practicing lesbian, converted, came to Christ, and she's written lots of books. Her latest book is a book entitled Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. Rosaria Butterfield is a gift to the church. Anything you read that she has uh, written is good. Gospel comes with a house key. Uh, unlikely convert, all she's ever written is good. Rosaria Butterfield. Another man who was a homosexual and was converted, he's been to our church, named Christopher Yuan, wrote a book called Holy Sexuality. I found that book very helpful. Holy Sexuality. His focus is holiness and how that's lived out as sexual beings. It's a great book. Great book. If you want to get technical, you want to get down into philosophy and what's underneath, uh, two books I'll recommend. Uh, the Toxic War on Manhood by Nancy Piercy. The Toxic War on Manhood by Nancy Piercy is a great read. You'll work through that fine. And then there's a man named Carl Truman. He's an Englishman, Carl Truman. He wrote two books, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Hard to read and understand. I don't recommend it to you unless you're just brilliant and you want to take a run at it. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He then dumbed it down for, for the rest of us. And he wrote a book called The Strange New World. That's easier to read. It's the same point. So those are all of my recommendations. Let me uh, say a word of prayer. And as I do, uh, I'm going to ask the gentleman to come and lead us and our moderator to lead the way. Let me pray. Father, thank you for giving us a book that leads us, that points us the way. We thank you for your creation. Help us to live in humility uh, and love and truth, to stand gladly and humbly on truth. Find us faithful. We thank you for your constantly providing for our church. Lord, we pray that you wake us up tomorrow morning in enough time to spend time with you, that you bring us back on Sunday to worship the Lord Jesus as a congregation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.